This is uh, Romans chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Starting in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how would God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Praise God for the reading and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. The fact that we have life and breath and the ability to be here this morning is a gift from your hand. We don't take it for granted. These are holy moments for us of encouragement and strengthening and instruction and life change and repentance and confession so God, we give you praise. We give you worship. Thank you, God, for the opening of our kids' wing. What an amazing blessing. What a testimony to your grace. What an amazing uh, open door for Julie and the children's ministry, God. We are so, so grateful. We've been doing kids' classrooms and hallways and theaters and everywhere else. But God, to be opening a kid's wing this morning is to your praise and glory. Thank you. And Lord, we, we do lift up in prayer, God, our elections on Tuesday. We ask, God, that you would just give incredible grace and mercy to our country. Lord, there's no perfect politician. There's no perfect political system. We acknowledge that. We know that. God, may you move on the hearts of every member of our church to vote. Lord, we live in the freest country in the world. Help us not to take it for granted. May you be so gracious to give us wisdom to make decisions that are honoring to you. God, and we also pray on this day, the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. What, a, what an unbelievable day to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who right now are suffering physically. They're gathering in underground places. They are, they are being hurt for the gospel. They're being targeted for the gospel. And Lord, we, according to scripture in Hebrews, we are to pray for them as though we were in prison with them. So God, we do that now. We transport ourselves to Sudan, northern Sudan, where Christians are being targeted, persecuted. Houses are being burned to the ground. 
for the name of Christ. Lord, we transport ourselves to India and China right now where there are gatherings underground and in basements and in houses and undisclosed locations. And there's so much joy in your church. Those believers outpace us in joy a hundred times over. And oh God, we... Yeah, we just... uh, We lift up our brothers and sisters in those contexts. God, may they continue to be bold in their faith in Jesus. We think of... um, our very own mission church planting team in Lima, Peru, Cole and Debbie Albright and Steve and Kelly Frericks and Joseph and Kimberly and Daniel and Heather DeLand. And oh God, we ask that you would work in the city of Lima. It's been a hard few months for our missionaries. They've been challenged, pressed, pushed. We love them so much. We ask that you would cause the gospel to multiply in Sol de la Molina and Manchai and Musa and the other townships around that area. Oh God, would you please do a good work there? And we think of Louis and Amber O'Toole in South Africa. Bless them. The townships that surround Welcome, the hundreds of thousands of people who need to hear the gospel. Would you be with Louis and Amber and Joshua Balaji and his wife? God, may you just be with their ministries. God, thank you. Thank you we could be a small part of this whole global thing. Um, It's very humbling. In Christ, bless the word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Praise the Lord. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Josh. I'm the preaching pastor at church here. And no, I don't normally pray that long, okay? So (laughs) probably wondering if you're the first time visitor, like, is he always this long in prayer? Like this? No, there's so many things to pray for. I could have prayed for hours. But this is, this is church. we got to get to the scripture. And we're Americans. We're on a time schedule. So um, we digress, right? We go to the word of God, Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles, verses 1 through 8. And as we approach Romans 3, 1 through 8, I do want to let you know that John Piper, if you know him as an author, he said about this passage of scripture that we're going to study together, he said, My brain almost broke trying to understand the complexity of the paragraph. So that's always super comforting for a pastor in Des Moines when one of my preaching heroes, who's also one of the smartest people in America, said, oh yeah, that passage right there almost broke my brain. So all normal, common pastors like myself feel super discouraged all week about the task ahead to try to dig into this passage and make it make sense. So by God's grace, I'll do my best. Can we have that agreement this morning? And uh, may God bless the word through the spirit and we'll trust him for great things. So as we approach the passage, um, Romans 3, 1 through 8, I want to say this. We have a commission to go and tell the world about Jesus. Amen? Do you agree? We have a commandment. That is not an option. That is a command from Scripture to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have said and commanded. And lo, I'm with you always in the end of the age. 
So the gospel, according to Christianity, must be celebrated and it must be spoken. So we have a commission to tell people about Jesus. So here's the implication of the Great Commission. If you love Jesus, you will share Jesus. Okay. If you love Jesus, you will share Jesus. Now, when you share Jesus, people will have questions. <laughs> oh, God bless America, right? Like we oftentimes wish that if we share the gospel and we have the courage to do it, that people will just automatically see visions of the resurrected Christ, have no questions whatsoever, and be like, that was amazing. What a great presentation. I'm ready to repent now. <laughs> Instant gratification. That is the name of the game in America today. We hope that when we share the gospel, there won't be any questions. But then when we do get questions, oftentimes we as Christians are like aghast. What? You have what question? And you're always afraid to share the gospel because you may not have the answer for the question, which makes you freak out, which makes you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't share. The other alternative also is what if they ask a question that requires work or labor for me? <laughs> To understand, I got to go dig and read and figure out the answer. What if that happens? That is also part of it. Um, but here's the thing. I want to just put your, this is a very apologetic sermon. Like this is going to be very apologetically driven. Like apologetics, defending your faith. Okay. It is okay and it is right for people to ask you questions when you share the gospel of Jesus. Okay. It's okay. In fact, it's actually a good sign of health. When someone is like, I'm considering this message, I've got some questions for you though. And they stop you and they, hey, wait a minute. Hey, wait, wait. I have some questions. And that is actually the title of my sermon this morning. Hey, wait a minute. All right. Wait a minute. That's the title of the message. Hopefully it's memorable. Hopefully you remember it for a long time. Wait a minute. I have some questions for you. Here's some questions. It happens all the time with almost no exceptions. Here's the questions that people have asked. This is a sampling, but people have questions. If you push the gospel and say, Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, right? That, that's going to push people to the, like the foundation of their soul, like what they believe. So they're going to push back. Wait a minute. I got some questions here. Here's some questions that people have asked me over the years. What about evolution? What about evolution, pastor? Like, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about that? Because... It's normal in a school setting to hear only evolution as presented as a theory of how we got here. So evolution is always a question. What about aliens? I've gotten that question a ton more. Like these last couple of years, people are like, what about aliens? And I'm like, well, you know, 60 Minutes just ran a thing on aliens. So must be true. Here we go, right? 60 Minutes did it. Must be true. That settles it. Amen, right? No, of course not. Of course not. Aliens, though, are becoming like a thing. People are asking about those things all the time. Um, what about my church upbringing? A lot of people ask me that question. What about my church upbringing? I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I memorized verses. I even got a special pin from Sunday school. Like, what does that mean in the grand scheme of eternity? What about my pins? You know, that's a thing. Uh, here's a common question. What about my deceased relative who maybe didn't know Jesus? 
What about grandmas, grandpas, uncles, aunts, nieces, nephews? What about babies that die? What happens to them? What about people who are deceased? I don't know. How do I handle that? Because that's either going to, that's going to push me towards accepting Christ or that's going to be like a deal breaker if I can't guarantee that my, my, um, my relatives know Christ or knew Christ. Um, here's another one. What about the person who lives on the island with no exposure to Christianity? They've never heard the name of Jesus. What happens to them, pastor, huh? What's going on with them? What's your answer there? You know, and that, that question comes up. And I was just talking to a Muslim on Friday night, uh, an uh, individual that I used to coach basketball for. Um, he's, a, he's a very committed Muslim. He was at my house for two hours, and we were talking about Christianity and Islam. And we got to the moment, right, of the resurrection. And I was talking about Christianity. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And, he, and I said, so you in Islam, I mean, you guys believe that Jesus did not raise from the dead, correct? And he's like, absolutely. I said, so this is fascinating to me. I said, let me learn more. And I said, so you believe Jesus is buried somewhere in the Middle East? He said, absolutely. He says, so you think Christians are just following like this foolhardy idea that God took on flesh and then died for the sins of humanity, rose again from the dead. You think all that's just fairy tales. You, you like Jesus as a teacher and a philosopher, but you don't really like him as a resurrected person. He said, absolutely. Wow. So you can imagine that conversation got real fun real fast, right? So here's the thing. Questions are totally fair. I want you to be a Christian that is okay with being asked questions about your faith. I want you to be able to defend your faith. Like go back to sermons that we used to preach. Use this time as a training ground so that you can witness and, and have answers. And here's the, the heart of the passage this morning is this. Christian, there are answers in the text of Scripture for every question you'll ever be asked. Amen? We have the answers. We have all of them. First Peter, um, the Apostle Peter said, in this we have everything we need for life and godliness according to his power that works so mightily inside of us, right? We have answers. Paul is dealing with questions in Romans 3, 1 through 8. Now, how many questions? Nine. Nine questions in these eight verses. That's a lot of questions. Nine questions. And Paul deals with these questions by giving four answers to the questions that come to him. So this is a very apologetic passage. This is Paul going through. Here's all the questions I've, I've got. I'm going to give answers to those. And why is he doing this? Why is Paul giving answers to questions? Because he is launching into a diatribe. And how many of you know what a diatribe is? A diatribe is, a, is a, um, it's an old speaking convention that, that philosophers used back in the day where they would speak about a subject and then they would anticipate the questions that would be asked about their subject and they would build those questions into the talk 
so that you would, as the questions enter your mind as a listener, the speaker would deal with those questions. You'd be like, oh, thank goodness he's talking about my question as he's presenting. That is called diatribe. And that's what Paul is doing here. Why is he doing it? Because the, the Jews were probably feeling the full court press. Like, Paul, leave us alone. You keep bashing all of our Jewish upbringing and our foundations, and you keep pushing us so hard that, you know what, pal? We got questions, man. You keep pushing hard about Jesus. We're going to push back because we have what is called a history. We've got traditions. We've got the law. We've got a lot of things going on here. So that is the heart of the passage is Paul's diatribe defending the gospel to those who are questioning his assertion that everyone is a sinner and in desperate need of Jesus. Okay, so that is the big idea this morning. Put it up on the screen for you here. Paul defends the gospel to those who are questioning his assertion that everyone is a sinner and in desperate need of Jesus. So it's almost like the Gentiles and the Jews are coming to Paul and they're saying, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, pal. Time out. We got questions. Okay, so we're going to work through four questions that the Jews would have for Paul and Paul's answers. And I hope by God's grace that as a Christian, this will encourage you in your answering or your defending of the faith in Christ. So I've got four hey waits. Okay, that's the points. Four hey waits. Okay, the first one is hey, wait a minute. So is there any purpose in my religion? That's the first question. Is there any purpose in my religion? Verses 1 and 2. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So if you look at verse 1, here's the question from the Jews. What advantage has the Jew? Or what value of circumcision is there? So you can almost feel the frustration of the Jew in this verse because it's almost like they're saying, Paul, look, we, we're just building with frustration because you keep hammering us with how wicked we are and how lost we are, even though we have the commandments. And we have Abraham, we have Moses, we have David, we have the law, and we have all the stuff, the priesthood and the temple. And you're telling all of us worthless, so therefore, should we just throw the baby out of the bathwater? We might as well. It's almost like you can feel the Jew throwing up their hands, saying, then what is it worth anyway? Here's a question for you. Have you wanted to throw your hands up this week and just be like, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, you have. I mean, you pick it. You pick the category. Work, family, trials, tribulations, whatever you got. But many of you this week were in the place of a Jew in this text where you're like, what's it all worth? Anyway, I am ready to just cash out and go home and just be done because you know what? This is not worth my time. Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah come on now. All right, so you get it. You get it. Like, what is the point, Paul? Except it's not just our American life Paul is questioning. Paul is going deep and he's saying, oh, all of Judaism, thousands of years of God talking to you, all of it's worthless. You got to believe in Jesus. What? You can, you can feel it, right? 
So verse 2, what is the advantage or the value? Paul's answer is this. It's, it's, it's much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So here's Paul's answer. The answer to the question is that you have every advantage and every uh, value in being a Jew. Don't throw all that away. It's an amazing gift God gave you. So don't throw it all um, into the, the creek. Don't throw it all in the woods. Keep it, right? Well, what, what is the value of being a Jew in verse 2? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you didn't know, the Jewish people were selected by God to be his very special people. And he was, they were selected in Genesis chapter 12 when God's word came to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 12 says that. All, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That is an amazing promise. God picked out his word, communicated his word to Abraham and said, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every single person in the Old Testament and the New Testament will be blessed through you. Now, church, if you're like feeling a little disconnected from this, I'm like, eh, I don't know if that really fits me. That's kind of an Old Testament thing. I will tell you right now, you and I are in this grocery store with a newly furnished kid's wing open and all God's people said, amen. Because of Genesis 12, 1 through 4, you are receiving and inheriting the blessing of Abraham this morning. The reason that we have a church is because we are in the line of blessing of Abraham through Christ. Everything you have is because of God. Amen? That's amazing. God's word was revealed not only to Abraham, but to Moses. In Exodus 19, 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, the word came down, picture your, your best Charlton Heston, right? Coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments like this. And here's the word of God written on stone tablets. And oh my goodness, look at the gift of God to give God's word to his people. Only Jews were the recipients of that blessing. What about the whole Old Testament, like the prophets and the Psalms and David and all the wisdom literature of Solomon? All of those things were given to Israel. It was such an advantage to them to receive the word of God. So don't throw your religion away. Your religion is helpful because it gives you a responsibility to respond. In America today, God's word is accessible. Very accessible. Do you view having the scriptures in your life as a blessing or do you take it for granted? Many of you have not more than one copy of this book in your house. You of all people are most blessed. Amen. You can do this on your phone and get the Bible app and you can have 6,000 Bibles at your fingertips. We are most blessed. We are blessed by God. He has given us his word. There are millions, hundreds of millions of people on this earth who are not blessed the same way we are. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw your religious background away. Take it for what it is and make a great response. That's the answer to people who question, what should I do with my religion? So, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Question number two. 
what about the people who mess things up? Okay, we're, we're, we got through the word one, but what about the people who messed things up, who were unfaithful? Look with me in verse three and four. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If God's people are unfaithful, here's the idea of the question. If I see someone who is unfaithful with the promises of God, does that nullify God's faithfulness? You might be like, what in the world are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. If you see an unfaithful example of someone who really messes it up, does that then nullify your view of God? Well, let's be honest here. When we see someone screw up, when we see someone fall into sin, when we see someone walk away from the faith, you know what? It hurts our relationship with God. Does it not? It does. Because sometimes we tie how the performance of certain Christians that we lift up on a pedestal, we tie that with God himself. And sometimes when we see so much unfaithfulness amongst people, we look at God and we wonder, are you really faithful or not? Here's an example in the Old Testament. Well, you know, Jonah, what a bad attitude that guy had. Amen. That guy, Jonah. He didn't even want to go. He gets eaten by a whale. He gets spit out. He goes and reluctantly preaches the gospel to Nineveh. And then he sits on the top of that mountain at the end of his story. He looks down at Nineveh and he's just angry. Why is he angry? Because everybody's responding to his message. What kind of preacher is that? That's a terrible preacher. Like everybody's responding. Everybody's getting saved. And he's like, ah, I hate it. God, I knew you'd do this. You know, what a terrible example. Does Jonah nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question. Does Jonah overpower God's faithfulness in heaven? What about another one? Well, you know, Samson, that guy really screwed things up, didn't he? With Delilah. What a loser. I mean, look at, look at Samson. I mean, what a mess. That guy's always making a mess everywhere he goes. He's screwing things up. He's messing things up. He's not faithful. By any measurement, Samson is one of the worst people to represent and judge God's people. I mean, come on, Samson. End up with your eyes gouged out. You end up pushing down these pillars. You kill yourself and you kill like 3,000 Philistines and all this stuff. Does Samson's faithlessness, his bad example, nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question. What about Jacob? What a deceiver that guy was. Jacob. I mean, talk about the, the, one of the worst Bible characters. He's deceiving people. He's going back on his promises. He is always manipulating things. He's wrestling with God. He does all these wrong things all the time. And yet it's through him, right? Twelve tribes come and sinfully they come. Twelve tribes come from his line. What about Jacob? What a terrible person. Does Jacob's bad example nullify the faithfulness of God? You get where I'm going, right? How about all the evil kings and you go through the Old Testament? So many people today, we look at American Christianity, right? A lot of people don't believe in Christ. 
Another week in America, another celebrity pastor has fallen, right? Another week in America, another big time pastor who says all these great things about God, down he goes because of sexual sin or greed or lust of some kind. And we see all these big time Christians fall. Not only the big time people, but how about people you know who have fallen from grace? Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's the answer from Paul. By no means. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon man's performance. God's faithfulness is dependent upon his character. And God is faithful. Can I get an amen? No matter what you see from humans, don't put your hope in men only. Put your hope in God because he is perfect. He is faithful. All men are liars. Psalm 116, 11. Psalm 51, verse 4. God is perfect in heaven. And so our answer to the question of non-Christians who say, well, you know, church, I mean, it's just a bunch of hypocrites and it's a bunch of people who are unfaithful. You can say, amen, amen. That's not what I'm believing in to get me to heaven. I'm believing in God. So, hey, wait, what about those people who messed up? All those people who are messing up. Don't look to man, only look to God. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the answer to the question. The third, hey, wait, is this. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't God run a faulty system? Doesn't God run a faulty kind of system? It's kind of weird, isn't it? This whole redemption plan, verse 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, then how could God judge the world? So here's how the thinking goes. And you're going to have to track with me because some of this might get a little uh, spicy, okay? So the thinking goes this way. I'm unrighteous. God is righteous. So if I'm unrighteous and God knows that I'm unrighteous, then isn't God unrighteous to inflict punishment on me for what he already knows I am, a sinner? Does that confuse you enough, right? Is that, woo? Okay, I'll say it again. <laughs> Not saying it'll make it any clearer, but I want you to track with me. Go back on YouTube, watch it over and over again until it makes sense. Okay. I'm unrighteous and God is righteous. So if I'm unrighteous and God knows that, isn't God unrighteous to inflict punishment on me for what he knows I already am? So isn't it unfair for him to pour out wrath on sinners who he already knows are bad and evil? Isn't this God's fault? Is kind of a short way of saying it. Didn't God set us up for failure? If he already knows we're going to be unrighteous. And isn't he then unrighteous for pouring out wrath on us while we're sinners? Like that's the idea. Basically, did he, didn't he create like a bad system? This is a really bad system. Why would the infinite, all-wise God create a system that is so hard and difficult? Why wouldn't he just make it so that everybody gets saved and it's all easy and, and all God's people said amen, right? Like that's, why not? Because it's not God's fault. We humans love to blame systems, don't we? We love to blame systems. We like to go and say, you know, I don't know if you've heard, seen, there's like a vote coming up on Tuesday. Did you know about this? It's happening. People are already complaining about the votes and the early votes and the things and the counting and how many, how many votes are going to get counted in the systems and the systems are bad and the voting machines don't work and here's all the stuff that is. Where, where, ah, right? 
Systems. We blame systems. We blame Amazon. Amazon said I'd have my package by Tuesday. It's Wednesday. I didn't get my package. I got, I got a ding on my phone this morning saying that my delivery of my thing was delayed. And I'm like, okay, systems. Systems. We humans love to blame systems, and we have to be so careful not to blame God for his system because there's nothing wrong with God's system. That's the answer. By no means. Paul says there's no means because God is righteous and he will judge the world with righteousness and truth and he will get it right. God will get the judgment of your soul and mine exactly right. Nobody's getting away with anything. And those who believe in Jesus or don't believe in Jesus, all of it will be made known in that day. And doesn't God run a faulty system? Don't you Christians believe in a faulty system kind of God? Like a redemption, got to believe, got to do all that. The answer is no. There's nothing wrong with God's system. Amen. Last question. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. I got a question. Doesn't God get more glory when I sin? Huh? Doesn't God get more glory when I sin? Here's verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. So the argument of verse 7 is this. Okay, if you tell me that this gracious God is going to pour out grace on me, and the more I sin, the more grace he's going to give to me through Christ, then shouldn't I just keep on sinning? Right? If, if the more I sin, the more God has to forgive, then I guess I should just keep sinning so that God's grace can keep coming. Do you see the, the logical argument, right? And so the question is, like, don't I get more glory? Then, then I guess the logic flows like this. I get to keep on sinning when I get eternal life, when God pours out more grace, when. It's a win, win, win for everyone. So therefore, it's like telling God when you're sinning, when you're saying wrong things, doing wrong things, and, and acting wrong, you're like, God, I'm actually doing you a favor right now. I'm going to do drugs for your glory, God. And I have heard that argument about marijuana. I've heard it many times. I can do this for the glory of God. I can just keep doing it for the glory of God. And that logic, Paul said... You're condemning yourself with the logic. It's so bad. The logic is so false that you are literally condemning yourself with that kind of reckless theology. Here's what I mean. Paul addresses it in many scriptures, but Romans 6 is probably the most clear. It says this, How, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means... How can we who died to sin still live in sin? The point of salvation is to get you to stop sinning. Amen? Not to run into more sin. Jesus paid a penalty on the cross to get you to stop sinning. So therefore, salvation, when it's truly understood, is to run away from sin. That is the Christian answer to the abuse of grace question. Because many people will ask you as a Christian, well, don't you believe in forgiveness? I mean, why don't you just keep asking for forgiveness? Just keep doing it all the time. There's a difference between running into sin 
and running away from sin, right? And salvation, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we look at the death that he died on our behalf, we look at that with amazing thankfulness. And we say, if that man, Christ, gave all of that blood for me, it is an insult to Jesus Christ for me to run towards sin anymore. If he did that payment, I ought not to live in that sin that he paid for anymore. Praise God. Because he's inside of me. So the answer, the Christian answer to that is basically, I have nothing to say. Paul's like, I'm not even going to bother with the argument. It's so bad that your condemnation is just. You're going to stand before God and you're going to be condemned because of your own arrogance. So, wait a minute. I got some questions. So all these questions come. Pop, 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 pop. And Paul answers them through Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. Two things as we close. One, at God's throne, there will be no more questions, only answers. Isn't that good? At God's throne, there's going to be no more questions, only answers. And I don't know about you, but I am so looking forward to the day where I don't have to ask any more questions. And I'm looking forward to the day where I don't have to field any more questions from people where all the answers are right there. Christ is there and he's going to give all the answers to everything we've ever wondered. That's the hope of heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the answer to all of the questions that come from humanity. He said, it is finished. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Christian, be confident. Be confident. You have the answers you need for every question that comes your way and every question that comes into your heart. The answer is Jesus, ultimately. So, will you trust him this morning? Will you believe him this morning? Will you repent this morning? Will you confess that Christ is your answer? If you love Jesus, you will share Jesus. And if you share Jesus, people will ask questions And you have the answers in Jesus Christ. We have a commission, church, to fulfill. We better get to it. Don't be afraid to do the commission, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We have a special youth group of girls that are going to be singing the song called The Commission. And this is going to bless your heart because this is going to be a good way to leave your mind with something to think about, something to meditate on. And how are you doing with the commission God has given? If you love Jesus, you'll share Jesus. If you share Jesus, you'll have questions. You have answers. It's found in the commission. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word this morning. Thank you, God, for grace and mercy. Lord, we as Christians, we have the answers in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for every Christian who's thinking through apologetics right now and defending the faith, that you would encourage them to be bold and to be uh, gracious in their defense. Lord, we have all the answers we need in the Bible by your Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would empower Christians for Great Commission living. 
in our church. Lord, I can't help but think that there are some here this morning who are hurting and they are uh, brokenhearted. And maybe they've fallen away from you. Maybe it's been a while since there's been some genuine things happening in their heart with you, Jesus. And this answering question seems like a mile away. So Lord, I pray that you'd be with those who are here with a broken heart. That you would lift them up and embrace them and help them to see your love for them, your compassion, your willingness to forgive sin and restore us to mission. So Lord, give us grace as we listen and as we close. In Christ's name, amen. You guys can all...